Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Yobed by Ruth, and Yobed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Roboam, and Roboam the father of Abiah, and Abiah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shechil, and Shechil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zodok, and Zodok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of, Je- of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's say amen together, church, amen. Good job, Paul Roberts, wow. Now you know why I delegated that task this morning. Smart, see? Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you who are tuning in right now. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 as we begin. And before I get into that, let me just uh, give one additional announcement, a plug for this Christmas Eve on Thursday night, 6 o'clock. Be back here. Tune in if you would like as well. And we will have our Christmas Eve service, which will be a great time of celebration. If you open up presents on Christmas Eve with your kids, well, tune in and watch the service first. And then you can celebrate Christ and go right into the presents that you're going to open up. So let me encourage you to be a part of that church. That's this Thursday night, Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock. I want to preach on Christmas today as well as Christmas Eve. And today, I'll I'll just be honest with you, today is going to be the strangest Christmas message you've ever heard. I didn't entitle it that, but I could have. I want to talk to you this morning about a Christmas tree. But it's not like a Douglas fir. It's not like a white spruce kind of Christmas tree that you put in your living room and decorate. I want to talk to you this morning 
about Jesus' family tree, that Christmas tree from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And I want to start out, if we could, by just doing a little thought experiment with everybody who's tuning in, everybody who's here this morning. Uh, use your imagination. Everybody bring your imagination to church this morning, okay? Just listen in now. I want you to imagine yourself right now as the Apostle Matthew, okay? You are the Apostle Matthew. And you have lived through the greatest events in human history. I mean, you started out as a tax collector and nobody liked you because you were a tax collector. You were hated by all your brethren. But then Jesus said, come on, come follow me. So you went and followed him and you gave up your tax collecting and you became a fisher of men. And you saw these amazing things happen as you were Jesus' disciple. You saw, you saw the, and heard the greatest teaching ever from Jesus. And you saw these great miracles too. The feeding of the 5,000. Wow! Jesus walking on water. Wow! You saw that. And you also saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What? And then, if that wasn't enough, after that, you saw Jesus arrested. And you mourned that. And you ran from him. And then you found out that Jesus was crucified while you were in Jerusalem. And you were sadder than you had ever been in your life. And then, lo and behold, a few days later, you saw Jesus raised from the dead in his resurrection body. Hallelujah. And you were there. You were there when the Great Commission was first preached. When the, the Great Commission was first given to us. You were there, Matthew. And you saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Okay, is everybody with me? Are you feeling like Matthew right now? Are you now? Okay, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and now you've got a job to do. The Holy Spirit is pressing you, pressing you, pressing you. You've got to write about this. You've got to tell people about this. You've got to put a book in the Scriptures. And it'll be eventually the first book in the New Testament. No pressure. Where are you going to start that gospel that you're writing? Where are you going to start the greatest story ever told? Where do you start this faithful narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Well, Matthew starts, Matthew 1, probably where none of us would start, because we're not Jewish. And we don't understand necessarily, necessarily the the importance of genealogy. Matthew starts in a place that's very important to him and very important to the Jews he's trying to reach. He starts, more appropriately, you might say the Holy Spirit, right, inspired Matthew to start with, with a genealogy. And, and he starts in verse 1 with Abraham and David in order to show the readers that this guy, Jesus, was way more significant than any person that ever existed, that ever lived, He's the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. He's the heir to the Davidic throne, the son of David, the, the new king of David. He's the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's where Matthew decides to start his book, his gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, I would argue that Matthew, you know, even goes back farther than that, farther than Abraham, farther than David. He goes back all the way to the beginning because the first two words in Matthew in Greek are the words biblos genesios in Greek. Biblos genesios, the book of the Genesis. 
the book of the genealogy. Matthew is showing us here that there's a new genesis. There's a new beginning for our world. There's, new, there's a new hope. There's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Jesus. But you know what? He's the same as the old sheriff, now incarnated, now raised to life as the king of the universe. His plan for salvation is just a little different now in the New Testament than the Old Testament. This is the Jesus that Matthew writes about in Matthew chapter 1. This is the Christ, the Messiah that we celebrate at Christmas time. So let's talk about Jesus, Harvest Decatur. What do y'all say? That's a good thing to do at Christmas time, isn't it? Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about his family tree. I'll give you five observations today from Jesus' family tree. You can write these down in your notes. Five observations from Jesus' family tree in Matthew chapter 1. Here's the first. Jesus' family tree includes Jewish patriarchs. It links Jesus to the great men of the Old Testament. Matthew starts his genealogy with a great statement at the beginning. He says, the book of the genealogy, the book of the Genesis, got a new Genesis here, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there are two genealogies in the New Testament, so let me just point that out. Luke chapter 3 includes a genealogy as well. And Luke, when he records Jesus' genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the very beginning. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew starts with Abraham, and he emphasizes Abraham and David in this first verse because Matthew wants to emphasize that the two great messianic hopes of the people of Israel are being fulfilled in Christ. Now, the Old Testament tells us that there will come a son of Abraham, an offspring of Abraham, a child from his seed who will bless all the nations of the earth. God promised Abraham this in Genesis 17, verse 6. This is on the screen. You can read it. God told Abraham, I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. God told Abraham in Genesis 22, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And to David, later, as part of the Davidic covenant, God promised this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So it's imperative for Matthew to link the promised one, the Christ, to Abraham and also to King David. And look at the names that follow in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. These are the great patriarchs of the Old Testament. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, in verse 5, Matthew mentions Boaz and Jesse. In verse 6, Matthew mentions David and Solomon. Every Jewish boy like Matthew grew up knowing these names and loving these stories about their patriarchs. You know, every Jewish boy knew these great men. Before they could talk, they knew about these great men. And by the way... Matthew and every Jew in his day knew that the Messiah would come from Judah. That's an important name in that list. They knew that the Messiah would not come from Joseph, even though Joseph is the more famous person in Genesis. They knew that the Messiah would not come from Levi or from Benjamin. Moses was a Levite. The, the Davidic line didn't come from Moses. 
Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Everybody knew the Messiah wouldn't come from Benjamin. It wouldn't come from Saul. Samson was a Danite. Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Jacob. Everybody knew the Messiah wouldn't come from Dan, or at least they should have known if they were listening up in rabbinic Sunday school. The Messiah would come from the line of Judah. David was a Judahite king, and all of David's sons were Judahite. In Genesis 49, Jacob prophesied over his sons, and he said of Judah, he spoke of the lion of the tribe of Judah that would come from his line, that the scepter would not depart from this lion. Isaiah prophesied about the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Jesse was David's father. Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. The Messiah would come from Judah. Jesus' family tree links back to Judah. If you were, you know, just, you imagine yourself as Matthew, just imagine yourself as Jewish reading this for the first time right now. If you were reading this as a Jewish person, the first page of the New Testament, reading this, this lineage, you'd say, yes, oh, ooh, ah, good. This is us. This is me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of my heroes. What, what, what's Matthew trying to show me here that Jesus comes from them? Hallelujah, you would say. And then you would get to some other names that you would be less excited about in the genealogy. Some Gentiles. Let's talk about them. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Jesus' family tree includes Jewish patriarchs. And Jesus' family tree also includes Gentiles, which is a shocking development. You know... I think as a Jew would read this for the first time in Matthew's day, they would be totally excited about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Yeah, all these great patriarchs, David, Boaz. But then the Gentiles would be really off-putting to them. And I think, I think Matthew wants it to be off-putting. He's trying to do something here. It was commonplace, by the way, for a Jewish man in the first century, even before that, a Jewish man in the first century to wake up every day and thank God that God had not made them a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. It was very common at this time. Thank you, Lord. You know, wake up in the morning as a Jewish man. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And that's, that's really the, the kind of ethnocentric chauvinism that was common in Matthew's day, that Jesus walked right into that world. And yet here's Matthew in his gospel and who does he put into the genealogy of Jesus? He puts four Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy. Here's the first. Look at verse 3 with me. So Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Now, a Jewish person, you know, great excitement as they say, Ooh, ah, yeah, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, yeah. Tamar? What? Oh yeah, Tamar. I forgot about her. I forgot about the sexual indiscretion of our great patriarch Judah. They probably wouldn't be as excited about seeing that name in here. And Tamar, I'll just tell you right now, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from this, so let's think about this for a second. Tamar's presence in this genealogy is absolutely intriguing. What is she doing here? Not, not only is she a Gentile, but she's a woman. Gen, gen, genealogies at this time typically didn't include women. And yet Matthew's does for some reason. And not only does Matthew include women, he, can I say this? He includes an unusual group of women. He doesn't include the great matriarchs. Sarah's not in here. Rebecca's not in here. 
Leah's not in here. Rachel's not in here. Who's the first woman mentioned? Tamar. Why in the world would Matthew include her here? I'll answer that question in a second. But first, let me tell you about Tamar. This is from Genesis 38. See, Judah, the son of Jacob, he was a rebellious son at first, and he had a rebellious son who married a Canaanite woman named Tamar. So Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And Judah's son, whose name is Ir, died before he produced any offspring through Tamar, his wife. So Judah actually gave his second son, Onan, to be Tamar's new husband to produce an offspring, but Onan was wicked before the Lord, so was his brother Er, and God put him to death. And so it was customary at that time to send the next brother in to produce an heir. But Judah didn't want to do that because he was afraid for his last son. And so he sent Tamar back to her father's house, back to Canaan, back to the Canaanites. And this for a woman at this time, this is, this is a great embarrassment to not produce any offspring. And so this is what she did. She dressed up like a prostitute, and she sat by the side of the, ro- side of the road as her father-in-law Judah passed by, and Judah hired her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant with two sons, Perez and Zerah. Perez continued the family line, and David's genealogy, as well as Jesus' genealogy, is sullied by the presence of this Canaanite woman, a reminder of the indiscretion of the great patriarch Judah. That's what happened. Can I just say something at this point, you know, as we kind of get into this? If you were, let's say you were Matthew and you just wanted to make some stuff up, right, about Jesus, make him look better than he is, you wouldn't put that in here. Everybody with me? Why would Matthew put that in here? I'll tell you why I put it in there. Because it happened. Because it's true. And you know what? There's another reason he put that in there. Because let me answer the question I asked earlier. How, how come Sarah's not in here? How come, how come Rebecca's not in here? How come Leah's not in here? Matthew's doing something here. He's doing something theologically. He's doing something to reach out, not to just Jews, but to some pagan Gentile men and women like you and me too. You know, I used to think, when I studied the Gospels, I used to think, well, Matthew, oh, that's, that's the Jewish one. That's the one that was written to Jews, to convert Jews, you know. Oh, yeah. But we can kind of learn about it as Gentiles. I don't think that anymore. Matthew has a purpose here, and for sure it's totally to convert Jews, but he wants to convert Gentiles too. I'll prove it to you. You want me to prove it to you? Who are the first people that show up to see Jesus after he's born in the book of Matthew? Does anybody know? Matthew 2? It's not the Jewish shepherds in the area. That's in Luke's gospel. You know who shows up to see Jesus after he's born? The pagan, stargazing, magi from the east. We, we just sang that song about, you know, if I was a magi from the east, I would have come from afar. That is great because that is our forebearer. Those pagans, that's us. That's who Matthew's trying to emphasize here. Jesus was born not just for Gen- Jews, but for Gentiles too. I'll prove it to you some more. Have I proved it to you yet that Matthew was written for us Gentiles as well? How does Matthew end his book? He starts with this picture of Gentile women and then also, you know, the Magi from the East coming. How does Matthew end his gospel? Go into all the world to all those pagan Gentiles, even those ones in North America, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Matthew wrote this book so that Jews would get converted, but also so that Gentiles like you and me would get converted. And those four Gentile women went right into Jesus' genealogy. There's more here that I could say, but, and I will say it. I got a lot to say this morning. But write this down as number three. So Jesus' family tree includes Jews. It includes Gentiles. And speaking of Jews and Gentiles, here's the third point. Jesus' family tree includes sinners. Jesus' family tree includes sinners. Can I say it this way? Jesus' family tree includes men and women of disrepute. It does. And some of the people that are in here, it's just shocking that they're in Jesus' genealogy. So men and women both of disrepute. Let me start with the women first, but trust me, I'll get to the men before we're done. Matthew mentions four women in this genealogy. I'll list them. In fact, I have a slide that shows them in the text. So first of all, we have Tamar in verse 3. Then we have Rahab in verse 5. Then we have Ruth in verse 6. And then we have Bathsheba in verse 6 as well. So all four of these women are Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, even. Ruth is a Moabite. And Bathsheba was probably a Hittite like her husband Uriah. Notice she's mentioned in verse 6 as the wife of Uriah. So these women were Gentiles. I think that, would it, that should encourage Gentiles like you and me. I think that should encourage women in this room, that, that women are in Jesus' genealogy. They're also this... And I think this is another reason Matthew put them in here. All of these women were either the instigators or the victims of sexual impropriety. Here's what I mean by that. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute to trick her father-in-law. Rahab actually was a prostitute in Jericho. Her life and the lives of her family were saved because she helped the Israelites when they came to spy out the land. And then she married right into the Judahite clan and she became part of David's genealogy and part of Jesus' genealogy. There you go. There's a prostitute in Jesus' genealogy. Ruth was morally pure as a person, I believe, but she came from the Moabites. And if you read in the book of Genesis, the Moabites actually derived from Abraham's nephew Lot after his incestuous, drunken dalliance with his daughters. Genesis 19, as Lot was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read all about that sordid story in Genesis chapter 9. You might say, boy, Pastor Tony, there's a lot of sordid stories in the Bible. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Now you know why Jesus had to come here and save us. Because it's not just in the Bible. And it's not just in Jesus' genealogy. Yes, Jesus' genealogy is full of sinners. You know what? We're all sinners in this room. Aren't you glad Jesus came for us? What a great thing that Matthew's trying to convey to us theologically. The last woman in this list is Bathsheba, and she was more the victim of sexual sin than the perpetrator. If there's ever a hashtag me too moment in the Bible, it's when David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 sees her bathing from his palace rooftop and he brings her into his chamber and he sleeps with her and he impregnates her. It's telling here that even, even a thousand years after his reign, David's son Solomon is listed in verse 6. Everybody look at verse 6. As the son of the wife of Uriah. 
Everybody see that? That's like so circuitous, isn't it? The son of the wife of Uriah. Like what? Isn't he just the son of David? It's almost like Matthew is belaboring this point for you to know that David, that guy that you love so much, he's a big fat rod and center just like the rest of us. And he had a child through the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What? I think one of the reasons that Matthew is emphasizing David's sin is because he's trying to build a contrast between King David, great King David, and the greater son of King David. Whereas King David was a big, fat, rotten sinner, Jesus Christ is not. And the failings of his father, the son of David, the the King David, the son of David, isn't going to repeat that cycle of sin. He's a different kind of king. He's a sinless king. And it's not just David that's the sinner in this list. They're all sinners. Abraham and Isaac both lied about their wives to protect their own skin in the book of Genesis. Jacob was a con artist and a deceiver. Judah helped his brother, helped sell his brother Joseph into slavery and slept with his own daughter-in-law. You might say, wait, wait, Pastor John. He didn't know it was his own daughter-in-law. Yeah, he just thought she was a prostitute. Is that better? He's a sinner. Jesus' genealogy doesn't get much better after that. David seduced Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, killed. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1 Kings 11. He chased after the foreign gods of his foreign wives at the end of his life. His son, Rehoboam, was a lousy king who defied the Lord and divided the kingdom. And between Israel and Judah, Rehoboam worshipped idols, as did his son Abijah. Joram murdered all of his brothers, 2 Chronicles 21. Ahaz made metal images for the god Baal and closed the doors of the temple, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Manasseh, oh, Manasseh. Everybody see Manasseh in this list? Manasseh was the worst of all of them. He sacrificed his own sons, the sons of David, King David, grandsons. He sacrificed them before the god Molech. He was a wicked, vile, evil king. He's right in Jesus' genealogy. And, And even the good kings, can I put that in quotation marks? Even the good kings, King David, Hezekiah, Josiah, and others, they had their their failings and their sins. And all of these men and all of these women were sinners that went right into Jesus' genealogy. You say, man, Pastor Tony, Jesus' genealogy is full of messed up people. This is messed up. Yeah, yeah, it is. A lot of messed up people. Can I just let you in on something? In terms of family trees, your family tree is messed up too. And I bet you I could prove that to you. Just give me your 23andMe check-in and we'll figure it out. And minus two. How long would it take to find skeletons in the closet of your genealogy, of your family tree? Now you know why Jesus had to come to this world. Now you know why Jesus had to be born into this world and die die in this world. He did it to save us from ourselves. And he's the only one that could. And to all of this, you might say, okay, well, Pastor Tony, if, you know, Jesus' family, Jesus family tree, his genealogy is messed up, so is mine. Well, what makes Jesus different? How is he any different than us then? You know, if his family tree is messed up full of sinners, my family tree is messed up full of sinners, why should he be my Messiah? Why should he be my Lord? Why should he be my King? 
What makes him different? If you're thinking that or if you're asking that question, that is a great question to ask. And I would say the last two points that I have for this message are going to answer that. Why? Because here's the thing. Yes, Jesus' genealogy is just like the rest of us, except that it's not in two ways. In two ways. Write this down as number four. Here's one of those ways. Jesus' family tree is full of royalty. It includes the Davidic kings. And all of the promises that goes with that in the Old Testament. Jesus' family tree is royalty. Not just any royalty, but Jewish royalty. Not just any royalty, but God-ordained biblical royalty. This is not the house of Windsor here. This is not the house of Tudor. This is not the the British monarchs. This is the Jewish king. This is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the root of Jesse, the branch of David. This is the king, the son, who would rule the world according to Old Testament promises. God even said this to David, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. You can read this on the screen. This is about Jesus. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will take my steadfast, I will not take my steadfast love from him, and his throne shall be established forever. By the way, if you read through the book of Chronicles, you might say, First Chronicles, Pastor Tony, that's like genealogy, genealogy. The first nine chapters are genealogy. Why is that? Because they were looking for this. They wanted this. The Jewish people, where is The Messiah, where is the son of David? We're waiting for him. Where is, even going back to Genesis, where is the serpent crusher? God promised us a serpent crusher and he hadn't come yet. And they were looking for him and they were wanting him. And so now Matthew says, the king has come. The king is here. The promises are being fulfilled. The the great heir to the throne, King David's greater son is here. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me, just to emphasize. I'm not going to read all these names because Paul did fantastic. And I'm going to screw this up if I try to read them all. But look at those names. All of those men are kings. Solomon, Rehoboam, Jehoshaphat, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jeconiah. They were kings. And then starting in verse 12, they're no longer kings, ruling kings. After the deportation to Babylon, all of these individuals, Sheltiel, Zerubbabel, Azor, Zadok, Eliud, these men are no longer kings on the throne. The Babylonian captivity changed all that. They destroyed Israel. They destroyed the kingdom. But still, they were descendants of the royal line, all of these names leading right all the way to Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, Most famous name on that list is Zerubbabel, by the way. Zerubbabel means born in Babel. That's what his name means, the shoot of Babylon. Zerubbabel was born in Babylon, the heir to the throne of Israel. But there's no throne in Israel to claim. He's in Babylon. He's in captivity. Actually, Zerubbabel was key in bringing the Israelites back to the promised land. You can read about him in Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah, but... He wasn't the promised son of David. 
He wasn't the promised son of David, but he was in the promised son of David's family tree. So what makes Jesus' genealogy special, different from other genealogies, different from your genealogies? Well, he's royalty. He comes from a royal lineage. But now we need to, we need to understand that Jesus wasn't the only one, right? So you might say, okay, Tony, that narrows it down a little bit. But there's still a lot of children. David had a lot of children. David had a lot of offspring. We're talking about a lot of people. It's not just Jesus. How come Solomon wasn't the promised one? I'm sure David wanted him to be, but he wasn't. How come Zerubbabel wasn't? They all had Jesus' lineage, his pedigree. They all had Jesus' credentials, so to speak. What makes Jesus different from them? There's one important difference between Jesus and all the other kings of Israel and all the other ones that derive from kings. And it's this. This is the fifth point. Jesus' family tree reveals the supernatural incarnation of the Messiah. How is Jesus even different than Joseph? His adoptive father. You know how Jesus is different from Joseph? It, the key term there is adoptive father. Jesus was conceived different than Joseph and all the other kings. I was reading this last week, this fascinating, this fascinating story about the last king of China. His name is Puyi. And Puyi was actually the end of a 2,000-year dynasty in China. And in 1911, he was deposed. He was removed, and uh, I mean, that, that ended this incredible dynastic reign. Well, Pu Yi, he survived through the First and the Second World War. Eventually, he was taken captive by the Japanese and then also by the Soviets. And the Soviets wanted to do China a favor after World War II, so they, they sent Pu Yi, this last king of the, the Chinese dynasty, they sent him back to China, to communist China. And everybody thought that as Pu Yi was coming into China, you know, Mao, the communist leader, is going to kill him. Obviously, because, you know, it'd be a threat. Here's the king coming back. But Mao didn't kill him. The communists didn't kill him. Instead, Mao wanted to make an example of him. So he took this king, this former king, he put him in prison. And when he got out of prison, he gave him a job in the, the communist regime as a street sweeper to show the world he's, he's just like all the rest of us. The communist regime, is, we're, all, we're all the same, so to speak. The king is a street sweeper. He humbled him in that way. Now keep that in mind as we look at Matthew 1, verse 15. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Do you know who Joseph is? He's Puyi. He's, he's related to the kings. He's the son of David. He's from this great line, this lineage that goes back a thousand years to King David. He's a lowly carpenter in a, in a powerful kingdom that doesn't allow kings. The Roman Empire has their thumb upon the Jews and keeps him down. So his, his lineage means everything, but it means nothing with the Roman Empire. Jacob was the father of Joseph. 
And what's funny even here, you know, Joseph gets some press in the next few verses in Matthew, but here, the important thing is that he was the husband of Mary. You know, I lied earlier. I said there's four women here in Jesus' genealogy. There's not four. There's actually five. And the fifth one's the most important. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, who is called Christ. Now, okay, everybody listening, I know it's late in the message, but I want to just do something technical with you, okay? Explain something technical. Everybody with me? Do you need to take a stretch, stretch break or something like that? Just get gear up. Here we go. There's something really important in verse 16 that I want to point out to you, and it's not something that you can see in the English language, in your English Bibles. It's something you have to see in the Greek. So let me point this out to you. Look in verse 16 at your English Bible. And at the end of Jesus' genealogy, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom. Everybody see that? Of whom. If you have an ESV Bible, Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Here's what I want to point out. In Greek, the relative pronoun, which we translate of whom in English, is actually feminine. Okay? It's feminine. We don't differentiate with relative pronouns, masculine, feminine. So, Sonia is, you know, my wife, you know, so you would say something like, you know, Sonia of whom Tony is married, Tony of whom Sonia is married, of whom, of whom, we wouldn't differentiate masculine, feminine. But in in Greek, you do differentiate with gender. And it's feminine here. Of whom, Mary of whom Jesus was born. And not only do you differentiate gender, and this is a feminine gender, you also differentiate number, singular or plural. So what, what we have here with this pronoun is a feminine singular pronoun. Of whom? Who does that of whom refer to? I, I know you're tempted to say Jesus because that's the answer to all my questions. It's not Jesus, okay? <laughs> feminine, singular, of whom Jesus was born. Who are we talking about here? Mary. And even the verb born is a passive tense. So, you know, if you read through this whole Genealogy, you have Eliad was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. If, if you have a King James Bible, it's beget, 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 beget. There's no beget with Jesus. He was born of Mary. And there's a divine passive there that indicates that there wasn't a human father figure involved at all. Why is that important, Pastor Tony? Why in the world are you emphasizing this so much? I'll tell you why, because there's this thing, this doctrinal statement that I would literally die on a hill for called the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Later in Matthew, in Matthew 1, verse 23, Matthew talks all about it. He gives us this great passage from Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You guys put that on your Christmas card and send it out every year. That's great. But you know, even before verse 23... Matthew lets us know in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus was born of Mary, not of Joseph. Jesus was born, passive tense, divine passive, conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
Joseph was an adoptive father to Jesus. Jesus was born to Mary and only Mary, but Jesus was adopted into the family of kings via his adoptive father, Joseph. Everybody with me? Okay, so I'm answering this question. How is Jesus' lineage different than Solomon? Different than Hezekiah? Different than Josiah? Different than Zerubbabel? Different than Joseph? Here's how it's different. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus circumvented original sin because he didn't have a human father. He was born of a virgin. Why? What's the end game here? Jesus was born of a virgin in, in order that he might later die as the perfect and holy, righteous sacrifice for our sins, the sinless sacrifice for our sins. If you get that, if you get that, you get the gospel. You get why Matthew wrote this. If you get that, can I, can I just say it this way? You get Christmas. If you get that, you know why we celebrate at Christmas time. If you understand that Jesus came into this world and he came in order to die. Listen, okay, I'm not going to get all ball humbug on you this Christmas, okay? You got presents? That's good. Go ahead. You got Christmas lights? That's good. You got your nativity all set up? That's great. All right? I'm, I'm not going to ball humbug that. But I just want you to know that little baby in your nativity set, that baby came into this world to die for your sin. It's not like baby Yoda, so cute and cuddly, and we just want to hug him, hug him, hug him. That baby came into this world to die for your sins. That's why he came. Let me say it this way, okay? There's no Christmas without Good Friday, people. We wouldn't celebrate at this time of year if Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. Martin Luther said, whenever you see that wooden manger back here, you should see the wood that would be structured for his cross someday. That's why he came to this world. Do you know what? Jesus, who came to die, the Jesus of Good Friday, aren't you glad too that he's also the Jesus of Easter Sunday? But the same Jesus who was born, who was incarnated into this world humbly, to a family line full of sinners. He died on Good Friday. He was crucified for our sin. And then three days later, come on now, church, he was raised from the dead. Without the Jesus of Good Friday and Easter, there's no Jesus of Christmas. There's nothing to celebrate. So, this is our King Jesus, Harvest the Cave. This is our king presented on the first page of the New Testament. This is his lineage. This is our king. The question for you this morning, December 20th, 2020, is, is he your king? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Is he? One of the things that I've noticed as I've gotten older, one of the things that I've seen, even in people, is that there is this emptiness inside of us, this hole, this longing to be ruled by a king, by a righteous 
and good and holy king. We all have this longing inside of us. And, and I see that. I see that every time around election year. Everybody's looking for a good king and we never get one. We always get somebody that falls short. There's this hole inside of us that Tim Keller calls it this memory trace. We have this memory trace as human beings. We always think back to the Garden of Eden and that great moment that Adam and Eve had when they walked with God in the cool of the day and the king reigned over them and it was good and they loved it. We all keep wanting that. We all keep longing for that, but we never quite get it. I've actually been reading recently some biographies, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and I've just been fascinated by seeing some of our founding fathers And particularly John and Abigail Adams, one of the things that they did, they spent their whole life trying to distance America from these British kings. And yet at the same time, they were skeptical about human nature. They were skeptical of what they would call pure democracy, where just the the people, the masses would take control because they thought that the masses, if they did take control, they would depose a king and then they would just bring a tyrant in who was worse than the king. And you know what? That's exactly what happened in France. They deposed the king and then they got Napoleon. That's exactly what happened in China. They deposed the king and they got communism. That's what happened in Russia. They deposed the czar and they got Bolshevism. They got communism. There is this longing in the human heart for all of us to be ruled, to have a king, to to submit to somebody who's good. And the goodness of the human kings always falls short. So here's what Matthew 1 teaches. Here's what this genealogy teaches us. What if I told you there was a king in this world whose whose lineage, whose family tree goes back a thousand years to King David? And this king is not just a human king, he's a divine king. He's the creator of the universe. And in his humility and in his love for us, he came to earth and he took on human flesh And he died for us. He allowed the subjects that he created to crucify him. And then three days after that crucifixion, he rose from the dead as king victorious. And instead of just obliterating all of us for putting him to death, he offers us, Jews and Gentiles both, this free gift of salvation. And he says, come. Come and follow me. Come and love me. Come and be a part of my kingdom. Put your faith in me. Put your faith in my death. Put your faith in my resurrection. I want you to live forever with me in my kingdom. It's too good to be true, except that it is true, and it's right here. I don't know about y'all. I don't, everybody watching right now? That's my king. That's who I'm going to love and serve and follow till I die and even beyond that. Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Messiah. The worship team's going to come up right now. Let's just prepare our hearts to worship. Everybody bow with me. Everybody watching right now online, let's just bow our heads, bow our hearts before the Lord. If you have not surrendered your life to King Jesus, what are you waiting for? Why would you want to serve anybody else?
you're going to serve somebody. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have not put your faith in Him, let me encourage you right now to do that. December 20th, 2020, it's been a hard year. But you can end it on a great note by putting your faith in Jesus. And let me just tell you, when we put our faith in Jesus, we don't just believe in His death, we believe in His resurrection. We confess Him as Lord. We confess Him as King. So if that's you today and you've never put your faith in Christ, do it right now. The quietness of your heart, surrender to Him. Lord Jesus, You are my King. Put my faith in your death. I put my faith in your resurrection. I believe you did these things for me to save me from my sin. I believe in life eternal that you are even now preparing for me. And if you're here this morning, if you're watching right now online and you have put your faith in Jesus, we're going to sing a song right now of testimony. We're going to testify corporately as the church that Jesus Christ is our King. Jesus, you are our King. We love you. We serve you. We acknowledge your sovereignty at the end of 2020, going right into 2021. We acknowledge at Christmas time that that baby born in a manger so humbly lived and died and rose from the dead, eternally glorious, powerful, victorious over death and sin. And Lord, we testify as a church together that you are our king. You are our king.